0: Welcome to GovActually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually
1: works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, president of Seamless Docs Federal, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk.
0: Well, Danny, I'm excited. Uh, this week on the pod, we're joined by one of our, I think we took a vote, she won all. She won. She won by a, a landslide. One of our favorite uh, people who actually knows how government runs, and that's Beth Cobert.
1: Yeah, I agree. A perfect first guest for for our podcast. And Beth uh, joined the administration from the private sector. Uh, a Senior partner at McKinsey, um, came to the Office of Management and Budget and served in the very important role of Deputy Director for Management, which uh, essentially leads all of the management reform efforts for any administration. And then she got the wait, call.
0: Wait, is it important because you had that job? It is important.
1: <laughs> yes, that is the number one reason. No. It's it's important. It's one of these things that maybe we'll talk more about. Um, you know, one of these jobs that not a lot of people know about, but is uh, actually critical to, to the engine of government. But then as I was mentioning, Beth got uh, what I refer to as the call, similar to That day back in early April 2012, when, Dan, you got the call to go to GSA uh, in the wake of their crisis, and May 2013, when I got the call. Beth, what date did you get the call?
2: It was a Friday. I think it was July the 10th, uh, 2015, uh, to join OPM. And was it a call? It wasn't a call. It was uh, at a President's Management Council meeting where... The chief of staff came by to talk to us about all things, and after that, called me out of the meeting, and at noon, uh, I had a new job.
1: So the background here is that the Office of Personnel Management was going through its own crisis. There was the the cyber breach in which uh, a lot of personal information of both federal employees, contractors, both current and former... Were, were taken off uh, a secure server, um, and as a result, there was a lot of messiness surrounding uh, that event. The previous leadership at OPM resigned, and you stepped into the organization at a moment's notice. Again, very similar to the experience that I had at the IRS and Dan at GSA. Tell us what happened when you got there.
2: Uh, so I arrived, and um I'd been spending some time on this in my OMB role because the federal CIO reported to me and all things cyber for the federal government's network reported to to the federal CIO. So I had the benefit of that. But I got there and the first thing we did was to try and there were a bunch of things going on. There was a team of people from across the government trying to figure out what had gone on with the systems. Um, In fact, if you read the November Wired magazine, you can uh, hear the inside story of what the people were doing down in the sit room dealing with the systems. So that was one set of things. But the other set of things were we had, you know, millions of Americans whose data had been taken, and we had to figure out how to communicate with them and reassure them and get them services. And we had an agency whose, you know, or, you know, was trying to deal with the reaction of them in the press. And how do you get the agency to both – Deal with all the cyber stuff, but actually also continue with the rest of their jobs because the rest of their jobs had to continue. We got to pay health benefits to to feds. We got to keep up with people's retirement payments. We have to make sure people could apply through USA Jobs, and you had to keep all that stuff going while you were dealing with this one very big issue at hand.
0: So there, there are a couple of things there. One, I heard that OPM has a sit room. That's news to me, but. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Second of all, I also want to thank you for the free uh, credit reporting I got as a result of, the, uh, of that uh, cleanup effort. But um, you were familiar with the issues as your role as DDM. What did you find when you came over as director of OPM that was new and interesting and, and, and um, uh, exciting, if you will?
2: So, uh, so a couple things. Um, what I found was actually lots of people who weren't from OPM – particularly on the system side, who had already been called in to help. This was a whole-of-government problem, and actually it was a great example of lots of different parts of government working together, which is not an easy thing to do, as you guys know. So we had our DHS friends and our DOD friends and you know, lots of other folks who had the expertise that we didn't have. We didn't have enough expertise in the agency to deal with this problem, and so we got a lot of people to show up and help us. Um, so that was one piece. The other part was we had to get clearer about how we were responding in a way that was going to actually mm. deal with the 20 plus million people whose data had been stolen. And so we had to find a way to get them information and to get them services that was uh, going to be the right way to do it, that wasn't going to create more security risk, that was going to be a good way to spend money. And that was actually a remarkably complicated thing to do. Um, and so again, what we tried to do, what I tried to do was figure out what can we do with the capabilities we have, and if we didn't have that capability, where could we go get it? Because, like, we couldn't create it overnight with people who didn't know the materials, and so we needed people who knew about doing that kind of thing. So we, like, went and pulled out people from DOD who did lots of complex contracting things like this to help us get a service in place. And then you needed to sort of reassure people and give them confidence that actually operations could continue. And so, how did you start a rhythm of communicating much more explicitly with our employees at OPM, with federal employees, with contractors? We partnered with the unions, we partnered with the contracting associations. I spent a lot of time up on the hill explaining what was going on to a large number of uh, senators and representatives who were concerned about the implications of this for their constituents, for the country. So we spent a lot of time trying to explain how does that happen and what we were going to do to fix it?
1: One of the cool. things that I faced when I was at the IRS was a tension between the fact that there was a lot of people who wanted the focus to be on what happened, what went wrong, and who's going to be held accountable. So when I got there, it was almost like we're sending Danny in to get to the bottom of it so that, so that there could be transparency on who did what when and so that people could be held to account versus the, the look forward, like how do we fix it? What's the trajectory that we're changing the agency on a go forward basis so that we can be better at our jobs and never let this happen again? And I'm just wondering, did you find
2: that tension as well? Absolutely, right? There was a whole set of questions of who was accountable, right, the previous director resigned, she said, I'm accountable, I'm resigning. And so we had to figure out how we were going to understand what had happened from both a technical perspective, like literally, how had it happened? How had somebody gotten access to the systems? What did we do to fix that? You know, this was, there were lots of comments about the challenges that we face, but we all know we're in a world where, like, like, there's a lot of headlines in the newspaper about cybersecurity issues. You go back two, three years, not so many. You go back six years, barely any. When I was in the private sector, I started doing some of this actually, really right before I left, you couldn't, like getting a CEO to pay attention was really hard. It just wasn't top of mind. Today, there's not a CEO who doesn't spend time with their board talking about this. And so we were in the middle of that. And what we were trying to figure out was, how do we actually put new defenses into the system now to make up for the fact that, you know, we had things we had to continue to repair from a different world in the past. And so I was very much trying to focus on how do we Make the system stronger going forward. Um, the history of how we got there was not going to change the future, and so I was focused on fixing the future. It's such an
1: interesting question, and the fact that you're you're the head of OPM makes you better than anyone to answer it. But this, you know, how do we hold federal employees accountable? And on the one hand, they're stewards of the public trust, and mistakes count and matter and can have big impacts. Um, and so there needs to be accountability. At the same time, we don't want to create this incredibly risk-averse environment. And we don't want to over-modulate in a way that we're really punishing people beyond what uh, what seems fair. And so I'll just – I remember this uh, – the IRS back in 2013 when I was there, in addition to the tax-exempt issue, they had also had their own like mini-conference scandal. There was conferences and uh, – Employee made videos that were deemed an uh, inappropriate use of taxpayer dollars, and there was this big hearing on it. and And there was an IRS official there who just got beat up for hours by the uh, by the government oversight committee. And at the end, it almost like they they laid into him so hard that almost they felt guilty. And they started almost apologizing to him and his family at the end of it. And it reminded me of the fact that... No one was apologizing at my hearings. Uh, no, no. no. <laughs> Except
0: the people, you know, behind the microphone testifying at the hearings. Was a, yeah.
1: I mean, there. it was, there was, there was anger, but the anger, and, and in some places the anger is justified, but then it goes a little too far. And so it's something that
2: I've always thought about. It was like, how do you find that balance? No, that is an incredibly good question, especially if you think about things like cyber, right? The breach was found by starting to actually build better defenses. So in a world where there is risk, the person who says, hey, I think we have a problem, like you need people to do that or you don't find problems. And so we've got to find a way of having balance that says, look, if somebody sees a problem or an op- you know, something that could be better, they don't get yelled at for actually saying, I think we could do this in a different way. And that is a really hard thing to do, right? Because it is easy to say you found it, you're responsible for it. Like, you know, you might not have been there before, right? How do you do that? Getting that balance right is critical. Like, otherwise, no one's ever going to raise an issue. Or come to the government.
1: Like, you know, it's like, if if I don't feel like I'm going to get a fair shake coming to government, then it's going to be harder, I think, over time for us to recruit top talent if they think, you know, a mistake is treated you know, with the death penalty, so to speak. Well, you know, that's
0: not an environment but, you necessarily want to come to. But so much of the government structure militates against that kind of communication from the front line to the to the head office, you know, the front office. Uh, there's, you know, everything from the way the space is laid out to the depth of the organizational hierarchy to the extensiveness of the oversight apparatus that there's an awful lot that keeps people yep. from raising an issue before it becomes a problem before it develops into a crisis and becomes a scandal and so generally people in the front office they don't get involved until it's a scandal and there's there, this this issue of communication is a is a fundamental one but can i get to something Dan, danny told in earlier conversation a story about how when he was DDM, there was this Mississippi, Mississippi River problem where the, there was no rain. And, but uh, the Corps of engineers was able to attract the attention of the leadership mm-hmm. to break through barriers. Um, tell me a little bit about your experience now as the new director coming in. Were you able to bust through some of those barriers and get those resources you needed?
2: Um, we've made progress, right? We got a bunch of money in the 16 budget to actually try and fix this. We got other people to show up um, because we needed it, right? We actually needed the money to fix the problem. And when you say
1: show up, you got like talent to come? We got
2: talent to come. We we, um, got talent to come to uh, the front office team. We got new talent to come to the CIO shop. We've... um, brought in a lot of talent. I got a great guy from the private sector who came to work with me on sort of cyber and IT modernization. A guy and his name's Cliff Triplett, right? CIO of big Fortune 500 company, lots of different experiences. And because it was that summer and we, we and he needed he was attracted. That he was attracted to the crisis, right? He was attracted to the crisis. He was attracted to serving the country, right? Yeah. This is a West Point grad, been in the army, gone to the private sector, he came because he saw a chance to make a difference, and he's you know, been there since you know year plus now and has made a huge difference in working with the career team to change how we do things and make them 21st century, not older. It's such an interesting
1: point that's being made here on many levels, and so let me tease it out a bit. It's a question of, of how we move talent around the federal government, how we bring talent in. And so you just made a point, Dan, it's like it's not until the the big explosion happens that everyone rushes to the scene. Um, and the question then becomes is how do we plan for that a little bit more and get the talent in place at, in critical junctures or critical areas of the government a little bit early on? Because I, could, I think I could have made the case to Mr. Triplett even before the crisis that there's so much importance going on in federal service and so many vulnerabilities that we need patriots to come with their talents to government. But are we doing a good enough job or are we waiting too late? It's great that the talent's coming. The question is, Is it can we move that up in the timeline a little bit?
2: So I think there's a great opportunity to do that. Um, we, it's all about how we communicate to people, right? One of the things we've been working on Here in my OMB days with the White House is this thing called the Presidential Executive Fellows Program, which is, we need people at multiple stages of their career, right? This is people who are experienced executives to come in and work on specific things, right? I actually had breakfast this morning with a guy who's come to to HHS to help on vaccine development. He's developed a vaccine. He built a whole company that did this. He's here not, you know, to work on this. We can find people. We yeah. can find them to come for a while. Are they coming for their whole career? Probably not, although you guys both know the folks who come as the presidential innovation fellows, most of them stay more than their year because the work is great and you can make a difference. So I think there's a real opportunity. We've seen it in cyber. you know. Uh, we've seen it in other places. It's communicating what that is and getting those people integrated with the talents that is here. The team that's worked on this is not all new people who came to the federal government. A lot of it is the people who were here who needed exposure to new skills and new ways to do things or just to be empowered to do what they think is important. And so I think there's huge untapped potential to bring people in, and I think there's huge untapped potential inside to unleash people's you know desire to make a difference that's what gets them excited
1: so so there's two things i want to raise only one at a time based on what you just said the first is just around mobility you know i think the ses the senior executive service i think as originally envisioned was not meant for someone to get an ses job and stay in that job that same job for 20 plus years but to be on call essentially to move anywhere in the government where their, where their talents were needed. And um, I know there's been, a, you know, I, I think the president announced SES reform uh, ideas, and nothing nothing in legislation, but I think through administrative actions um, a little over a year ago. Um, talk to us a little bit about SES mobility and is this a huge area of untapped potential that's gonna require a major culture shift? Is that something you support or is it tweaks around the edges?
2: I think there is a real opportunity with um, a whole set of things with SES, um, and that's what's embedded in this new executive order on strengthening the SES. It requires that agencies um, have 15% of their SES who are in rotation who rotate. Okay. And um, I think there is a real opportunity to do that. You got to get the matches to work, right? In the private sector, when you like try and do this, you sort of figure out where do you send somebody, and it's the same problem: where do I send them, and are they coming back, right? You send people to work overseas they have a great experience they come back they don't have a home so you've got to actually work at this in an integrated way you got to have people where the receiving agency is as excited about the person coming as the person who's sending them so how do you get logical pairs right logic there's things that are like you're not going to take a um ses in the acquisition community right really scarce skill and probably have them go run a research lab. That's not what the original, I don't think, was the intent. It is how do we get though the research person at the United States Department of Agriculture, you know, connected with the people at NIH or NSF or parts of DOD that are doing research where they can be leveraged across these things, or people who are doing direct customer service like running large call centers. There's lots of those across the government, right? lots of agencies touch citizens how do we share that talent and so it's about getting pairs that make sense and i think but you've got to change the mindset right it's true in the intelligence community you don't get promoted in the intelligence community without rotation that's the mindset
0: i think beth you're hitting on two issues one is how do you keep it from being a way for people to just rotate uh management challenges um although that might not be such a horrible thing but there should be some fairness and equity in the in the transfer. And two, how do you recognize, um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell popularized this uh, notion of five, uh, 10,000 hours to get good at, you know, anything. How, how do you recognize the fact that there is actually some depth of knowledge and experience about an issue that you want someone that someone leading a, a program to have? You don't want every three years, some perf, you know, brand new person. We've got that at the political level already. Uh, how do you, how do you keep yeah. the, how do you keep the professional, if you will, permanent government professional.
2: But I think that's a cycle that starts even before people become SES. When you think about, you know, GS 13s, 14s, and 15s, right? The folks who people in agencies think of as, they're, you know, they're managers at that point mm-hmm. largely, right? They're supervising teams. They're working their way up through roles of responsibility. How do you also get it at that level? Most of the career development programs now require people to do a rotation. It's you need it to stay fresh. You need it to get new ideas.
0: All right. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back. And when we come back, we're going to, we're going to get Beth out of the office of uh, uh, personnel management. We're going to talk, talk about uh, general management because of her tremendous experience there as well. Gov Actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop radio network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop.
1: GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact.
0: And Seamless Docs, the fastest, easiest way to move all your administrative data collection processes to the cloud. Seamless Docs helps make government beautiful. All right, we're back, and and Danny just has a, a burning personnel issue he has to bring up.
1: Well, it's, it's going back to this this talent question because it's something that that I've been thinking about. And you 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 raised earlier the the uh, the management fellows, the presidential management fellows, um, and how they come for a year and they find that they stick around because the jobs are so interesting and they have the ability to make an impact. And that's one of the things that when when I've been asked, like, how do we get more talent? to the federal government. Like if you were to go down to universities and public policy schools and MBAs and try, to, try to, to redirect people from going to the private sector so that we can get the right talent into government, what would you tell them? And I think one of the key things that I would tell them is you're gonna have more power, authority, impact, um, and responsibility Earlier in your career in the federal government, bigger bigger numbers of people that are reporting to you, bigger budgets that you have to manage. Um, and I think that is a potential selling point that I don't know that we've tapped into.
2: So I couldn't agree with you more. But, you know, It is a chance to make a difference on something that matters at scale. And that's what's hard. Doing things at scale is super hard, right? We've all... I spent a lot of time in the nonprofit world before I, as part of my consulting experience doing lots of things about economic development, you could get something to work in, you know, a town, a village. But that's great, but you're only helping a couple hundred people, and there's millions that need it. How do you scale that? That's hard. That's the interesting problem, right? How do we do this? How do you really make a difference for thousands and millions of Americans? It's good to help 10 people, but there's like millions of people.
1: So, so we, we made a commitment at our last podcast, Dan, that we would bring up a movie reference in every right. podcast. So here's my movie reference. It's ridiculous, but I'm going to raise it because I just th- thought of it, which is there's this scene at the end of Rambo, First Blood. <laughs> That's a great and, reference, and, Yes, and He's dating himself. And, 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 <laughs> and, and the character played by Sylvester Stallone is, is is agitated and upset, and he makes this big very emotional point that when he was in the military, he was in charge of million-dollar equipment and had all these responsibilities, and now that he's back post-Vietnam, I think he says something like, I I can't get a job as a waiter, I can't get a job uh, parking cars, whatever he says, it's just that clip just pops into my head as, you know, I think there's a real truth to the fact that in some of these public service jobs, you really have uh, an ability to, to to manage a much bigger footprint. I like the way you said it. It's impact at scale. It's not. It's you're right. I hit on like, hey, you get to manage more people, I'm and not you get sure to that
0: clip is a great recruiting. tool. All right, fine, but uh, <laughs>
1: but I was saying earlier, like you get to manage more people, you get to manage a larger budget. I think Beth made the right point it, with impact. Like um, you can you go to sleep at night really feeling that you're making a difference uh, for people and and serving the country. Um, that's when you combine those elements it's a real major marketing pitch to get talent to the government
0: my biggest issue wasn't finding people who wanted to come work for the government it was actually getting people in once I'd found them that's you know that's a I know we're gonna move off this topic but you can't really um, move off this topic until you have that conversation about all the work that you're doing to improve hiring
2: so um, I I agree with Dan here sorry Dan Okay. Um, well, I don't the, think they're
0: actually in They're in opposition. No, but
2: I think um, there are tons of people. There are tons of people. We, we see them when we go to campuses. We see them when we talk to people who would love a chance to make a difference at scale and serve their country. I, I don't worry about that at all. And we've seen it. When we're recruiting for the digital service, we get thousands of people applying. It's hard to get a job in the federal government, actually. Um, what we need to do a better job of is translating that passion into an ability to get hired, and you know, there's a bunch of things in the federal government that are good principles, right? They're called the merit system principles, and they mean it means you have to do it fair, you have to do it based on people's merits, you have to do it free of political influence, you have to open it up to all of society, and not just you know people you know. Those are sort of the the those are all good principles. I like, I don't think you'd find anybody who say those are bad ideas, but how do you make that work? And what we need to do and what we're working on is actually translating those principles into a real process that follows them. So it starts with, I'm trying to hire people wherever I'm at. I'm in the Social Security Administration trying to hire people to work in my centers in Baltimore or Detroit or Memphis. I, as the person running the office, needs to get involved. I can't default to HR. I can't do that if I'm an IT person or anybody else. Like the best CEOs spend half their time worrying about their talent. Right. Leaders in the federal government have to do the same thing about their talent and about their career talent. So it means when you describe the job, you really describe what it is. When you say you need somebody to answer a crisis line um, for vets with mental health issues, you really describe what you need and the skills of people who are gonna answer the telephone. You take folks who actually understand that, who understand programming, who understand science, to say, okay, here's a list of resumes, a pile of resumes submitted through USA Jobs. Which ones of these are really qualified? I can't judge the technical qualifications of a cybersecurity person. Like, they have a lot of words. I have no idea what they mean. But I can tell you that my security person does know. And so, They've got to do it, not just the HR person. they got to do it together. So <laughs> leaders have to own their teams. They have to have things that do that well. You can do that. You can screen with subject matter experts. You can use assessments to actually figure out who's got those capabilities. So you can get your way through this by much better execution. We've got this whole Mythbusters thing that you can go find on hiring excellence. If it's called hiring excellence, you can Google it that talks about what you actually can do. It's not perfect, but you can do a lot better with what we've got.
0: So Danny and I are, I'm gonna shift gears. Uh, Danny and I are big fans of the Keeping It 1600 podcast. At the end of their, at the end of their live podcast, the last couple of minutes, uh, someone asked the question, are you gonna keep this going after the election? And the answer came back something along the lines of yeah, we will, but we're not sure what we're going to talk about because, you know, governing is kind of boring. And there was some <laughs> reference to someone from OMB being on the podcast and how boring would that be? What is the most interesting, boring thing by that standard that you worked on when you were, when you were at OMB or, or even at OPM?
2: There's so many interesting, boring things I've worked <laughs> on. Um, so let me try and give you a couple of examples that relate to real people. Um, an interesting an interesting thing I worked on that involved a lot of the boring stuff was um, uh, the president made a commitment that we were going to hire 100,000 people with disabilities in the federal government in five years. People have great talent. They don't have access to it. How are we going to make that happen? And we did. We hired 109,000 people with disabilities who otherwise would not have had that opportunity to actually make a difference for their fellow Americans. Now, that's a great thing, sounds good. You did that with a lot of boring things. You did that with figuring out how did you pay for accommodations in different places. You did that by creating different, quote, hiring authorities, something I didn't understand before I joined the federal government, but like different sets of rules that apply to them. And we did that, and we got 100,000 people in the door, now working. We rewrote a set of rules similarly at OPM, and I'll come back to some of my OMB things, around, ban the box right ensuring that people who've actually paid their debt to society have the opportunity for employment that involves like an entire rule writing process where people review the words and they write regs and there's a whole clearance thing that is i'm sure would meet their definition of boring the agency circulation of that document probably boring the impact on somebody who now actually can potentially get a job because they go through the process and are deemed To have the qualifications and not have this eliminate them at the beginning that's going to make a difference for a lot of people through a bunch of boring rule writing processes
0: that's incredible public i mean it's incredibly important public policy underlying that that very kind of boring process danny you know you've been in a similar position i put you on a spot what was the most interesting boring thing you worked on because i know i know the answer the question and it comes back to something i did with (coughs) beth
1: all right, so there's so many choices. Um, the boredom was just everywhere. Uh, but <laughs> no, I, I actually, I, I I always felt there was never a dull moment. I'll go. What what pops into my head is the response to the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, um, and there was a lot of non-boring, exciting things going on in the region to deal with the crisis response. But I remember back at OMB. Um, we were thinking through some of the things that not everyone would think through. And one of the things we did working with all the CFOs of all the agencies that were responding was to make sure that we had an appropriate tracking of all the funds that were being spent on Deepwater Horizon activities. Because unlike Katrina – there was no one to sue in Katrina. We weren't gonna sue God for the uh, for the impacts of Hurricane Katrina, but BP was a, a man, that oil spill was man-made. And so we put in place a special reporting mechanism where every, every agency was documenting the funds that were being spent that could be used as part of the eventual enforcement action against BP, which actually ended up having an impact on our ability to litigate that effectively Collected so millions
2: of dollars exactly
1: so there's kind of a, a boring moment they're doing charts of accounts and segregating dollars spent to make sure we knew where they were going but that actually has huge significant impact to making sure that the government did ultimately its job in making making the country whole
0: so one of the most interesting boring things i ever worked on was with uh, was with Beth when she first came in as ddm and it was a set of benchmarks for administrative functions within the federal government. We had never looked at what it costs to hire someone, what it costs to buy something, what it costs to account for things in the federal government across agencies. Do you want to? Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
2: No, it was. Uh, it was. She I, said I, she pro- doesn't want to talk about it. No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. I do. So it was boring. great. Yeah. No, it was. It was boring. Um, but I am a self-professed data geek, so it was fun. Um, I know that sounds totally nerdy, but it's true. Um, But Dan and I decided, as part of this whole effort, that the only way you could figure out if you were doing a good job or a bad job was to have something to measure yourself against. And while it wasn't perfect, like any data was better than no data. We could have an argument about whether all the costs were in or all the costs were out. But you know, like, who were the people who were hiring people and their customers were both satisfied? Actually, they thought they were getting good people and it didn't cost a lot of money versus places where they were spending a lot of money and everybody was unhappy. And how could you use that to you know, change behavior? Because one of the things we all know is if you take a bunch of people in any form, most folks, and you say, okay, we're gonna show you how you're doing and some of you will look better and some of you will look worse. Um, most people will, and certainly both their underlings and their bosses will say, hmm, we're at the bottom of that list, not a good thing. We need to get to the top. And so you get a little bit of friendly competition, works really well. Um, You know, there might be a good reason. That doesn't mean that there's not a good reason, but it prompts an answer to the question, why is that? What do you do next? And we use that over and over. A little data and visibility and a little friendly competition and nagging go a long way.
0: Do you remember when we first released the data to the deputy secretaries, and it was was anonymized data, and the deputy secretary, without knowing where they stood in the hierarchy, immediately started explaining why their acquisition was uh, going to be more expensive? And then you you reveal the the agency names, and they were in the lower quartile. Uh, they were actually among the cheapest. And the, the fact is, so much of government, uh, so much of what we do at the at the at the fundamental kind of operational level, is run by anecdote.
2: Yeah, and this goes back to your Malcolm Gladwell comment, right? Besides the ten thousand hours, the other thing that I think it's Malcolm Gladwell or somebody else will say, right? They've done these experiments, which is you know you take a bunch of kids and you want them to bowl better and so a bunch of them you tell them everything they're doing wrong and a bunch of them you have them watch videos of good bowlers. People who you've told what they're doing wrong they don't get any better because they don't know what to do. The people who've watched the good bowlers get better and it's the same thing. What we tried to do with this remember Dan was to say okay look forget where you are there's these five people at the top they are both in many cases low-cost and high-quality let, why don't you go ask them what they're doing and copy that? You don't have to make it up. You don't have to be creative. Just, like, go copy them. So go find the good stuff and copy it. And that's the boring way to make government better.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, I think one of the things that, that I realized as we talk about the theme of, of boring good, which I think was a great question, Dan, is that what tends to make its way to the, to the national consciousness and the dialogue are – things that are more, you know, kind of policy formulation, um, you know, the debate on Capitol Hill uh, in terms of, you know, let's say immigration reform or healthcare reform. And when government execution makes it to the headlines, it's when something has gone wrong. And so I guess the rest is when we're doing things right, when we're plugging away and applying that elbow grease to get things done right, it's just not newsworthy, which is okay, except... The danger is if we lose sight of how important it is to invest in our people, in our tools to make sure that government is working effectively, because I may have to say this in every podcast, it's like, I want my air traffic controllers well-trained, I want my food safety inspectors well-trained, I want my crisis response and law enforcement well-trained and competent, Um, and I would imagine that every American shares in that. And so, you know... Beth, as you think about the future of the workforce, are there any kind of things that you would tell the incoming administration, whoever that may be, around uh, where we are and where we need to go in terms of
2: making these right investments? So I think we need to invest in people, right? This administration, there's been a big focus appropriately on technology. How do we need to modernize what we do with technology? How do we need to invest in technology, right? There's a proposal for IT modernization and like The workforce is the same thing. We need investment, right? We don't have a budget right now. I'm pretty sure in a world of uncertainty, whether or not I spend money training that air traffic controller, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until I know, and by the time the year has gone by, I won't have spent money training him this year. I don't know, but that tends to be what happens, especially when you don't know if you have money. So we've got to figure out how to break that cycle. We've got to figure out how to capture the passions of folks and make it easier for people to come spend time in government service did a ton of work this past year on bringing more cyber talent into the federal government and one of the key themes was how do we make this more permeable how do we get talent in from the private sector so we they can we can learn from them and how do we get them here so that they can learn from us because there's a lot of state of the art going on here because There's no way we can protect the country without those two things together. So how do we make this more fluid? Um, Those things are really important. I think there's ways to do them, and you just got to keep working at it.
0: Beth Cobert runs the Office of Personnel Management, OPM, was uh, Deputy Director of Management for OMB. Thank you so much for being with us today.
2: You're welcome. It's been great.